The Lead Story is proudly brought to you by Alex Forbes. Alex Forbes, insight, advice, impact. Evening, you're listening to The Business Report and I'm David Bishop. With me tonight, I have Dr. Greg Mills, who's from the Brentoast Foundation and has also recently launched a new book called Rich State, Poor State. Dr. Mills was in Vintook recently at an event organized by the Conrad Adenauer Foundation uh, where the book was launched and he spoke to uh, some of Namibia's top business people. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be in the room as well. I have a copy of the book. I've started reading it, but uh, Dr. Mills, I haven't had enough time to read as much as I would have liked to. Uh, welcome to the Business Report. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm sure you'll get to it. <laughs> I definitely will. Uh, so, Dr. Mills, just touching on yourself a bit first before we go to the book, uh, could you give our listeners a, a little bit of a background? Who is Dr. Greg Mills? So uh, I had the Brentos Foundation, uh, which is based in Johannesburg, uh, and the role of the foundation is to strengthen African economic performance. And the way we do this is really through a variety of measures. On the one hand, <laughs> excuse me, we um, we work very closely with governments at their invitation in preparing reform strategies, uh, fixing problems, uh, things to do with the economy by and large. Uh, and to say that's always at their invitation and we don't make them pay for it. So it's it's like a consultancy, but with a twist. And this is because we've been sponsored by the Oppenheimer family uh, and they want to give something back to the African continent. And they see very much that prosperity is a key part of of of, uh, you know, of development uh, and growth is a key part of that prosperity agenda. So much of our activities are devoted towards trying to instill higher rates of, of economic growth in various countries. To date, we've worked in about 20 different African geographies um, and currently uh, mostly in Southern Africa, but historically further afield, particularly in West Africa and in the Horn of Africa. Um, we also do public work, like this book, for instance, uh, write regular columns in the newspapers, and then do television and radio shows uh, of this kind in a way of both educating the public, more importantly, making people aware that politics is uh, a two-way process. It's not all about what our leaders do for us. It's also about what we tell and shape uh, in terms of the domestic debates and regional continental debates and how we inform our leadership about our preferred choices. Every five years or so in most countries, we have an opportunity to do that at the polls. But the foundation is about really informing that debate so people can make better choices uh, in terms of their own voting preferences and that their leaders can make better choices in terms of what they offer and what they carry out. And in all of this, we've learned a lot from other areas of the world, spent a lot of time uh, identifying best practice and bad practice from various case studies, uh, literally from Latin America all the way across Africa through into Asia and elsewhere. And uh, in fact, this book, Rich State, Poor State, reflects much of that journey over the last 20 years, which is the time the foundation has been in operation. Speaking about growth, and, and I know you said that uh, democracy and growth go hand in hand, uh, you also touched on... On, at the book launch, uh, the sort of theory of democracy not being an African thing. 
And I know that you said that isn't the case based on on your findings. You know, people often say that uh, Africans prefer a big man, a benign dictator, uh, but that's not actually the case. No, I mean, I think there's a there's a, a view out there, and this is particularly right now, a time that democracy is in recession uh, in the African continent. You know, back in the early 1980s, there were just two African democracies as defined by Freedom House, which has been gathering data on democratic conditions since the 1940s. And uh, there were just two, uh, which were Mauritius uh, and Botswana. And of course, that number went up tremendously after the end of the Cold War, when countries were were supported regardless of their domestic circumstances, to in the post-Cold War environment, to more support for and let's not use the democracy word because it tends to become a lightning rod for all sorts of criticisms. Let's just call it representative governance in various forms. Uh, and more and more countries have subscribed to democracy. And this has not been because of outside pressure predominantly. It's been because Africans themselves prefer democracy. And that is because they know the alternative is 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 even worse. Mm. Uh, democracy is not an answer in and of itself, and it's not a perfect system of government, as Churchill once reminded us. But it's better than all the others that have been tried, and lots of others have been tried in various forms, particularly the big man version, the so-called dictator version or benign dictator, if you're lucky, which is which has led to tremendously poor results across the African continent today. 70% of Africans routinely polled prefer democracy to any other type of government. This is what Afrobarometer tells us, and they've been doing polling on this for about 20 years. Mm. How do we... But 93% but 93% of Africans live in authoritarian circumstances, and there's a very clear correlation, and this is one of the things the book goes into, a very clear correlation between conditions of democracy, in other words, the better the democratic system, and we use Freedom House's classifications of free, partly free, and unfree in this regard, and you can use others. There are other democratic uh, uh, um, sort of uh, units of measure that people ha have employed. But the better the democracy, the better the developmental outcome. They're less prone to volatility. They're more diverse in terms of investment and economic activity. And this is principally because the rule of law offers people a right of recourse. Mm. These systems are seen to be more transparent, more open, and thus provide more opportunity. So I don't think that democracy or authoritarianism is an African thing. I like lots of leaders like to, and of course, lots of leaders want to be the big man yeah. or big woman. Uh, but in fact, Africans know differently and they know from past experience that actually democracy or more representative governments, cleaner governance, um, governance where there's a greater degree of the rule of law, this is infinitely preferable to the alternative. How do we tie together the uh, Afrobarometer figures, you know, the 70% that, that prefer democracy with what we're seeing as a growing sort of voter apathy, fewer and fewer people going to the polls at, at recent elections? Well, of course, uh, we do face that challenge. We face the challenge of coup d'etats, particularly in the Sahel and, uh, and in West Africa. And there's certainly some degree of democratic fatigue 
um, you know, lots of countries in the world, uh, um, uh, democracy is still very, you know, active. Mm. Um, people are, you know, encouraged to participate. In Africa, there is a level of fatigue, and in part that represents two things. One, that whatever their vote, um, they see that the circumstances don't change, mm. uh, that the government that was in there before simply stays in power and fiddles the system. So people give up. And this is the case, say, for example, now with many Zimbabweans who are extremely fed up with the with what they see as a, a system that doesn't represent their interests because of the level of election fiddling. And the second aspect is that the oppositions themselves are unable to either get themselves organized in a more consolidated fashion. They tend to be one-person parties. Uh, um, in many cases, with a very, very small fraction of support, more about ego than they are about the offer that they're making to to the population. So, I mean, I think the fault lies in, in both areas, and people's response is quite rational. It's not irrational, but, you know, really, opting out is not really a, a solution. Um, you've got to exercise that vote every five years, not least because many of your forefathers and mothers uh, worked so hard to be able to enable you to be in that position. So it's the ultimate sanction of any government mm. uh, is what voters say every five years. And, and oppositions have to, I think, encourage registration and then be clear about the nature of their policy offer and why it differs from government. And governments, too, uh, have to be forced in some cases to be more transparent and um, and and more open in the in the system of voting and elections that that goes with that process. I know I'm focusing quite a bit on the politics, but but as we've said, you know, the democracy leads to growth. Uh, you you said at the launch, people see politics as a point of extraction and not as a way to give and build their country for the good of others. I'm probably paraphrasing you there. Uh, and there's a quote that. I, I love, but I always forget who to attribute it to, which says that anyone who wants to be in politics should automatically be disqualified because they're probably in it for the for the wrong reasons. How do we fix that? Well, the voters have to really fix that. Uh, the voters have to fix it, and of course, those in the in in, in working in politics uh, have to fix that by and 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 reduce that level of cynicism by uh, you know s delivering on what they say they're going to do and i think one of the the huge problems in africa is is that politics is seen as an occupation from the beginning of the election until you if you're lucky enough uh, um, or good enough get into government it's seen less as a point or a profession of service than as a means to to extort and to extract to, to gain preferential access to the goodies of government. Mm. Um, and this is, is in part because I think that service culture is lacking in some areas, in part because the voters allow it to happen, uh, and in part because I think that type of extractive mentality pervades among the types of people, as you put it, who've been attracted to politics in the first instance. Mm. You know, Africa... African political parties are world champions at populist promises and failing to deliver. And the only way you're going to make them deliver is by booting them out. And that's why competitive choice is an absolutely integral part of any developmental agenda. 
um, that you can exercise that choice every several years is a key part in getting those developmental and economic policy and social policy choices right. You know, we talk in academia about a political economy, and essentially what that means is that the politics behind economic choices, it's the politics that enables things to happen. But to do that, you've clearly got to get the politics right before you get the economic choices right. Let's focus a bit on on the book then. As we said, rich state, poor state. Uh, I know you also said you don't write about anything unless you've been there and that the book is based on a lot of your travels. Uh, can you maybe highlight some of the countries that, that fall onto both sides of that spectrum? Well, the book, is, as you've already termed it, is a... Is a uh, is, is reflects these travels and this research conducted over a very long period of time. Uh, and they're about, uh, well, there are more than 20 case studies in the book. Um, and what I've tried to do is, is mix in uh, successful examples of various aspects of developmental choices in with some poor examples. So on the poor example uh, stage, you'd have, I'm afraid, South Africa, my own country, which, of course, has an untoward impact on countries of the region, including Namibia. Uh-huh. Um, but also I would uh, add in Argentina. Um, I would add in uh, Venezuela. Uh, I would I, I would group those together in a uh, and, and, and others uh, in Africa, like Egypt, group those together among countries which are which have obvious developmental advantages, very obvious. And then different political circumstances, they would do things undoubtedly differently and hopefully better. But for various political reasons, they have preferred to go down the route, perhaps less traveled, um, but one that uh, um, has delivered much less to their populations. Mm. The, the book is overwhelmingly focused, however, on countries that have done better. So, you know, in Africa, it's Botswana. Not without problems, but Botswana, um, uh, Morocco, uh, and Mauritius. Uh, in East Asia, I look at uh, Singapore and Vietnam, but not just the countries per se. It's about looking at particular elements of what each of these countries did. And I'm I'm very interested in countries that had a relatively poor inheritance, but translated that in a very short space of time into something much better. And there's perhaps no country that had a worse inheritance than Vietnam, although Singapore's was pretty bad back at its independence in 1965. So not that long ago, it was seen as a basket case. Today we see Singapore's aspirational. Um, now I know the circumstances are different to being that it was a city state, but at the time in the 60s, it was seen as too small to develop properly. It had no resources. And you often see this argument thrown back in favor of African integration. Mm. Our, our economies are too small. But Singapore, of course, has turned that on its head. I'm particularly interested in the role that outsiders play. So what can an outsider do uh, to try and spur or assist in a higher growth and development uh, trajectory? Uh, and Europe, of course, the way the European Union has essentially played the role of what we would term in Africa conditionality, has been, I think, uh, spectacularly successful on the one hand, um, but also it has enabled 
domestic political actors to blame the worst excesses of reform policies on the European Union itself. <laughs> and we often think, oh, well, Europe, what's the relevance of Europe to Africa? Well, Spain in the 1950s, emerging out of the back end of a terrible civil war with enormous human cost and destruction, uh, looked rather like an African country in many respects, uh, particularly one that's war ravaged. And yet, a changing political environment continuously through the 70s, through the end of fascist rule, into the 1980s and into European membership, uh, transformed that country in a very short space of time into the Spain that we know to get today, a top 10 global economy with diversity and wealth that scarcely resembles their inheritance in the 50s. The Baltics, Poland, these are countries that obtained their independence, as it were, in this case from the Soviet Union with the Baltics and from the East Bloc, the Comic-Con for Poland, around the same time that South Africa did. And they've completely transformed themselves uh, in the intervening period, in part because of the European Union, but in part because the, the seeds of domestic reform lay within. And that's a key part of this book. You know, what sort of leadership, what sort of strategy, what sort of level of domestic ownership do you require? And then, of course, we look at some of the, I look at some of the more difficult examples, uh, the, the role of NAFTA in, in Mexico, for instance, but the role of, uh, of politicians in snatching defeat from the jaws of victory in a place like, uh, like Argentina, but a better outcome in a place like uh, Peru. So it is, as you say, based on firsthand fieldwork. I find it of particular interest to spend time with policymakers, understanding the difficult choices that they have to make, understanding how they they think about long-term planning processes, and then trying to put this down in a way that's digestible for for the general public and particularly for a policy-interested audience. So- as you say, you come from uh, South Africa to our south. You've been doing a lot of work with one of our other neighbors, uh, Zambia, where we've sort of seen a lot of promise. And and obviously, for us as well, uh, you know, the regional integration, uh, I think, is important as well. It's not enough that, that Namibia tries to thrive. You even mentioned, I think, at the book launch, how we need other countries around us to thrive as well for us to thrive. Uh, what are you seeing about what's different, let's say, about Zambia now under the new leadership uh, than the past? I think, uh, you know, Zambia has got the politics right uh, to a great extent, Um, but they've got two significant challenges. One is uh, there's been a lot of value destruction, particularly in terms of the relationship with the private sector over the last uh, 10, 12 years of the PF government. And before that, there was obviously some upset in the mining sector, even before the PF government took power. And, and, and you know, I think I mentioned on the day of the book launch, you know, one of the very sad axioms out there is that the period of recovery is at least as long as the period of decline. So you spend 10 years going backwards, you're going to have to spend 10 years catching up and setting the ship and getting things back in order again. And I think President Tichelima has done a very good job in 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 providing that much more stable platform uh, for the reform process uh, uh, to embark. Um, the, the difficulty is not just that there was a lot of damage done, a lot of upset in terms of public investor perception and the like, but also that the government borrowed very heavily. And uh, 
you know, it had a $500 million debt uh, globally in the mid-2000s to over $20 billion today. And, uh, and of course, domestic debt is also very high because it was borrowing in domestic markets to meet salary bills. So consumption ruled under the PF government largely. Uh, it was a populist program, as it were. Uh, and eventually somebody has to pay for it. Mm. So any government that comes in has to not just, you know, manage down the debt, both through debt relief, but also and debt haircuts on the part of, of, of um, in de- you know, the, those that hold Zambian bonds or those that have lent money directly uh, to, to the government. Mm. But it also has to at the same time grow. Otherwise, in three or four years time, when they next go to the polls, that they won't be reselected because they would have gone through a very painful period of reform. Yeah, and then you throw on top of all of that uh, institutions which have become used to the old way of doing things, and you've suddenly got to steer them into a new direction, and that's more difficult. Mm. So, you know, reforms are not easy. Reforms are not for for sissies. Uh, they're for people with an immense amount of political courage, and you've got to start with priority areas, and then gradually widen them and increase and deepen them all the time. Uh, and I think that's what uh, President Hichilema so far has been doing very well. Mm. Um, perhaps not at the pace that he would like to, I'm sure. No no leader intent on development gets his country to move at the right pace. Mm. But I think it's, 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 it's absolutely necessary on the one hand. Uh, and you need, uh, you need some quick wins to enable you to have the long-term reforms that the country depends on. Dr. Mills, I've, I've got a million questions just from having attended the book launch, uh, thanks to the Conrad Adenauer Foundation, and I'm sure I'll have a million more as I carry on reading the book. But just to try and wrap us up, because we're running out of time, uh, at its core, uh, would you say that the book is, is then basically, you know, a bunch of lessons or aspirations and lessons to learn what not to do. Uh, also, the, the bit that I have gotten into in the reading, uh, I just want to point out to people that it's definitely not written like a textbook. Uh, who, who should be reading this book? Uh, that's very kind of you to say. I mean, I, I, I try to make it interesting because fundamentally I'm interested in the intersection of, of, of many things, but of, of business and, and government. So people who from both those areas are uh, are interested in development choices should um, to, should be, I think, read the book. I'm interested in in the relationship between those who think about these things and study these things. In other words, in the policy academia world and those in governments. So I'd like to think that they too in academia would be interested in this. Uh, but but more than that, I, I'm also interested in the intersection between between growth and security, between politics and economics, between political and economic choices and social impacts. So it is, it is, it is about this intersection uh, of, of these different strains uh, that the book is focused. So I think it would appeal, I hope, to a broad audience. It's designed to, to inform. It's also designed to irritate. Um, so you know, I hope that people respond. And don't have to always respond positively, but they should respond and 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 you know get their their brain matter churning at what I what I have to write. And I think finally, I'm more than anything else interested in people. So you know, too often development gets turned into these 
sort of abstract choices about policy, about technical aspects, about it becomes an exercise in PowerPoint, an exercise in summary, an exercise in political speeches. What I'm really interested in is how do those choices affect the lives of people? Mm. What happens to people's lives when politicians say and do one thing? What's the impact at the other end of the scale on the lives of particularly young people uh, who face many of the challenges resulting from the failure to make better choices in our uh, in our economies and in our in our in our country? So, it's a book about people, and it's a book fundamentally about how people, in this instance, policymakers, make a difference. And what I've tried to do is focus on those policymakers who have made a difference. And that's probably been the most exciting thing for me to learn about and I hope to write about. Dr. Mills, I, I know you left a couple of signed copies with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. Uh, so maybe some of the lucky listeners can get in touch with them and, and maybe get a copy. Uh, where else can you pick them up? In, are they available in bookstores? Uh, should people get hold of the Brenthurst Foundation directly? Yes, I mean, they can get hold of the foundation, but that's available at exclu- exclusives, uh, bargain books uh, on Amazon, uh, um, on all the South African usual websites. Um, stick your nose in the bookshop. I uh, hope you pick up a copy of that, but pick up copies of other things. You know, <laughs> It's very important that we read and make informed choices, whether it be through my book or through others. Dr. Mills, thank you so much. And uh, I'm definitely looking forward to a hopeful Another visit to Namibia sometime soon. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure to chat to you and a pleasure to visit Namibia last week. The lead story was proudly brought to you by Alex Forbes. Alex Forbes. Insight. Advice. Impact.